Gone? Hello? Any good? Hey, good morning, guys. How are we doing? It's great to be with you again. Um, kind of, we sort of, uh, my kids kind of ask me almost every two or three weeks, like, are we going to impact again this year? Uh, it's nothing to do with me and them like, wow, we really want to hear what you have to say. It has everything to do with just how much fun you guys are and that pool and all that stuff. But uh, um, it was great being with you last year. We have deeply appreciated that. Um, and it's good seeing you again. It's always been tough for me or for us as a family, seeing a group of you and then two years later seeing you again. You all remember us because we're the kind of ugly, ugly British folk with funky teeth. And uh, there's five of us or three of us or two of us to remember. We keep breeding, so we keep adding. So it's like evening the numbers out. But there's hundreds of you and you're like, hey, Simon, what's going on? I'm like, oh, good. How are you, girl? Uh, like. <laughs> Girl, is that general or dude, is that general sort of like, let me pray for you, I don't have any idea what your name is. That's why we keep saying to you every time, hey, just come up and say, I'm, how are you? And it just helps us out. But um, it's really good to be with you and um, it's amazing to be uh, able to bring to you just what I hope is the heart of such a, a phenomenal uh, section of scripture. So I just wanna pray about that. Um, the, the, the heart of scripture is not so much that you kind of know it and get it all memorized back in your room. Um, the heart of scripture is that it is something you, you, you sit under and receive as the very authority and governing narrative of your life. So it's not something you just know and can quote uh, if you're any good, um, but it's actually something that when we read it, we're saying, Lord, may this narrative shape who I am. So I want to ask that to take place and for us to really hear from God this morning. Father, we are so honored to be in your presence. We're so grateful that uh, you sent the word, the logos, the son of God, the very uh, revelation of Christ to reveal who the father is. But we, we thank you also that uh, in turn, through, through the work of your spirit, through the early men and women so devoted to you, you, you also gather together these inspired writings to become the very narrative of the people of God under which we sit and say, God, would these form me? Would these shape me? Would these transform me into the logos? Lord, I pray that you would use the Logos uh, this morning to shape us more into the Logos, the, 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 the image of the Son, the image of the one who is the head of our family, those who follow Jesus as Lord. So come speak to us, work in us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you have um, the scriptures before you, we are going to read from Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Someone hopefully would have taken you recently through, one, uh, verse, uh, through verses 1 through 11, but we're going to handle uh, verses 12 through 21, and uh, I've entitled this sermon, Head You Lose, Head You Win, um, and you'll kind of get the gist of what is intended by that sermon title as I move on, but uh, let me start with the... Uh, the um, the assessment of a commentator on this section of scripture. It is universally agreed that the passage before us is one of the greatest theological sections in the entire Bible. In its 10 verses, Paul summarizes the theology of the preceding chapters about the lostness of man and his rescue through God's provision. Guys, this passage before us is like global picture stuff. This is one of those stunning camera angles 
from the sky type thing or like in a Transformers or Avengers movie in the, one of the recent Transformers movie, this kind of whole epic battle taking place in Chicago and you kind of got these angles, whatever it's done by CGI or whether it's helicopter camera angles of the whole city and you see the epic stages of this battle taking place through the whole city. This is one of those passages of scripture. You see the whole city and miles and miles around it are in view and you watch this epic battle take place. This isn't just one of those scriptures that's kind of like a, eh, well, whatever, you can move on. This is sort of like, look at this. This is global picture stuff. This is the whole story of mankind in 10 verses. Paul's words here encompass humanity. Yet, even though that is the case, this passage, this passage will bring a question, bring two questions right to the very door of your own heart as a young teenager in Temple, Texas, in the Western world in the 21st century, in a setting so very different to whom this letter was written, it will bring two questions to your heart this morning. And I want you to listen as I ask these questions and then consider them again at the end because this is about you losing or you winning. The questions are this, whose family are we? Or whose family am I in? And is it visible in and through my life? You know, they always say you have your father's eyes or man, that guy plays so much like his father or his father was a remarkable soccer star. Look at him or her mom always used to coach volleyball and look how brilliant at volleyball she's becoming. And sometimes something we most hate, the idea of becoming like our parents is so often the case. We, we look and, 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 and this passage is gonna be about who do you look like? Who do you look like? My friends, in our world, we've got 99 problems, but sin is the one. Oh, you wondered where I was going there. You've never heard that song before, but it's, it's rude. So if you ever think about searching it on YouTube, I'm gonna mention another pop star later on that Dave and I agreed we couldn't mention her name in case you started listening to that music, and we know you're not like that. You know, so that song is a naughty one, just in case someone one day mentioned it or you even considered it, it's not good. I've never heard it, personally. I'm not like that, I am a godly man. We've got millions of problems, but sin, how evil works itself in and through humanity is at the root of all of them. All of them, my friends, we've got 99 problems, but sin is the one. Here in this pivotal passage, Paul helps us see both the incredible or pervasive reality of sin. It's everywhere, it's in everything, and it's in you, it's in me, it's in us. It's all pervading. And also God's stunning answer to this most vexing of all problems. You know, there are gods who leave you in your problems and ask you to get yourself out of them. In fact, the God of every other religion except our glorious God. He says, there may be 99 problems, sin is the one. And I've given away and I've made a way to solve that one great problem. The way Paul does this is to contrast the two individuals central to humanity. The two greatest men of human history according to the scriptures, I guess. Adam and Jesus. N.T. Wright, British scholar, writes this. One great theme runs throughout the passage like a thread. The contrast between Adam 
whose disobedience resulted in the reign of sin and death over humanity, and Christ, whose obedience has brought righteousness and life. As we get started, you read verse 12. You read these words. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all man because all sinned. As we get started, we come across this word, therefore, which asks us as readers of the letter to look back at what Paul has just written again and again. If you've been in a sort of Bible church setting or a Baptist setting, you'll hear, whenever you hear the word, therefore, you've got to ask what it's there for kind of thing. Paul is saying, therefore, there's a reason why he's now moving on. But by moving on, he also wants you to look back at what he's just said. Obviously, what Paul has just written in the first 11 verses of chapter 5 of Romans are possibly some of the most precious jewels in the whole treasure chest of Scripture. Scripture is this remarkable treasure chest of life and hope and truth and goodness and beauty, the revelation of who God is, pointing to the greatest revelation of who God is in Jesus. But some of the most precious jewels in that whole treasure chest that you could draw jewels out from are right before us in verses 1 through 11. The stunning revelation of how Jesus in his work of justification and making us righteous with God has brought peace, has brought hope, has brought the ability to endure through suffering and through pain and through sorrow. All the work of this wonderful Savior who even while we were still sinners, while we were still dead in sin, unable to respond to God, came and did what we could not do, died for us and gave us the hope and the joy of eternal life with him and what we were really made for. That's some pretty impressive stuff going on in verses 1 through 11. But now Paul foresees an objection. Paul's like, do you know what? As I write those words, someone somewhere, probably a bunch of Judaistic believers, particularly or Judaistic thinkers, would go, well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. How does one person's life do so much? You serious? One pesky Palestinian peasant? Killed on a cross is the hope of the world? Paul, let's get real, shall we? How can one sacrifice conquer the pain of sin and death? And Paul's like, okay, I've said these beautiful things, but I just quickly need to go, what is the deal here? What is the story of humanity and Christ's involvement in it? And Paul kind of, just in this one verse, works through this stage, this three-stage chain reaction of human history. This idea that sin comes into the world through one man. And because of the sin coming into the world by one man, death enters the world. Who knows that death is in our world? Okay, let me wake you up, because you should all put your hands up. Who knows that death is in our world? Because let me tell you, brothers and sisters, in the next 10 to 15 years, you will know death is in your world in a way that transforms your life because you will know what it's like to lose the ones you love. In fact, some of you here today know that death is in our world. And it is no fun, my friends. It is the very hatred of the human heart is the fact that death stares us all the face and says, when are you coming to join me? Death through sin, the sin of one man, and so death spread to all men. You see, the thing about being a teenager, and I can just distinctly remember it all those years ago, 
I literally used to say to friends of mine, particularly when I just come to faith, that I know God has so much for me, I will never die until I fulfilled it. You have this kind of ergo sum, I am the fulfillment of all of life, I will not die. It happens like that on the I-35. Not like that, like that. What is there is gone, death is in our world. It's like the scene in The Hobbit when Radagast the brown wizard sprints to Gandalf on his funky little rabbit-drawn chariot. Hair, hair, they're hairs, they're not rabbits, just to be certain. To tell him of the evil spreading through and infecting Mirkwood. Once tame and serene, this wood now becomes dark and black and spiders are walking the earth and the cobwebs are riddled throughout the scenery. Sin is in us, sin is on us, sin is around us. The darkness has infiltrated reality as it is. Sin is with us and with sin, death. That's all in verse 12. Paul's pretty phenomenal. Now Paul, in a way so typical of him in his letters, takes a break. He kind of goes, okay, I'm done with that thought. I'm going to get back to it. But he now moves on to 13 and 14. And he says this, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. What Paul is trying to say is that what would have happened to a Jewish thinker, remember this letter wasn't actually written to you and me. This letter was written to a group of first century believers, possibly Jews who'd become believers and still would have worshipped in Judaistic patterns and Gentiles. So their whole world is this awareness of Moses and David and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These are the central figures of their history. And so they're going, well, hold on. Like, like what do you mean? And Paul is going, well, well, look at this. Did Adam die? Yeah, well, that's expected. He was a really, really naughty one. In fact, his wife was naughtier, but he kind of got in on the act. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Oh, what about Isaac? Dead. David, he was pretty phenomenal. Dead. What about Moses? Yeah, he's gone. Oh, what about the guys in between? Like, uh, what about uh, the other guys in between Adam and... Yeah, all gone. And what Paul is trying to say, although, although the revelation of the law that happened on Mount Sinai, when Moses gets this revelation of do and do not, this is who I am, the Lord, the Lord, abounding in love, compassionate, although do not sin against me, these are the things that will make you my people, do not do this, do this, came hundreds of years after the life of Adam, everyone's dying. You know why? Because sin is in the world. So those people didn't sin like Adam. Adam was told directly, do not eat of that tree. What was that? Now Isaac didn't get that. Abraham didn't get that. Abraham didn't get do not murder, do not commit adultery. I'm sure that would have affected the whole Hagar thing. Anyway, but his wife put him up to it. I mean, that is some crazy stuff. Thank God our world's not, well, it's worse, but it's worse in different ways, I guess. People are dying. Paul is saying, hey, hey, I know you're going to say, but it's the law. The law may not have been given, but death is in the world. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. And now we are struck with a biblical idea which your very existence in our 21st century Western world will find repugnant. It doesn't matter whether you carry your Bible here every morning. 
It doesn't matter whether you're in a Christian family. The very fact that you are the age you are in the world we're in, this next idea disgusts you. We are so immersed seven to ten generations into a way of conceiving of ourselves that it becomes impossible to see ourselves otherwise. And we see ourselves as, it's called atomism. We see ourselves as atomistic. In other words, my existence simply is the fulfillment of all existence. There is no relationship between me and this young lady here, nothing. She is on her own, an individual atom. I am on my own, an individual atom. You're on your own, an individual atom. My wife's on her own, an individual atom, and never the two shall meet. Everything is about me and this world. Nothing else comes into contact. It's called atomism. We see ourselves as autonomous, distinctly disconnected from every other individual atom. Oh, we may bump into each other every so often, but really your existence has jack all to do with mine, sir. You are you, you do your thing. I am me, I do my thing. It's in your blood. It's in your blood. So the very idea of what Paul's gonna highlight next is repugnant to us. Each man is an island. Let me give you a few examples. There's a certain lady who sang the national anthem at the recent Super Bowl, who I won't mention because you shouldn't be listening to her songs because she dresses dirty. Anyway, you don't know her. But she says this, don't you ever let a soul in the world tell you that you can't be exactly who you are. Someone else, Ralph Waldo Emerson, insist on yourself, never imitate. You are the center of the universe. Don't even try to be like anyone else. You are the man, you are the girl. You, you, you're the one. John Lennon, I don't believe in Beatles, I just believe in me. There was a moment in John Lennon's life where he realized that someone else's life did have an impact on his and he was murdered. Not so in biblical or other cultures. We are a human whole in solidarity. And what Paul is revealing to us here is that every single one of us is incorporated into the life and the sin of Adam. Let me just prove it a little bit. Who got here today without their parents? Uh, no, you didn't. <laughs> Put your hands down. Who got here today without their parents? Okay, one of you put your hand up. Explain how you got here without your parents. You drove here, but how did you get onto planet Earth? Okay, ask your parents if they got here without their parents. And ask their parents if they got you without their parents. And ask their parents if they got you without their parents. Ask how it happened that sometime in college, two people met together and their very lives become entwined. But the fact that their lives, do you know they say that every person is six relationships away from every other person in the planet. That's a reason for not people are researching this idea that you are six relationships away, that you know someone who knows a series of someones, who knows a series of someones, who knows a series of someones. Six steps later, there is a fact, there, there's a possibility that you know someone in China, in Shanghai City, who you have no idea who they are, but six steps away from who you are, you have contact with them. There is a relationship. We are a human whole. Every one of our decisions infects the decisions of one another. And the Bible is telling us, Paul is telling us here that Adam's life, in Adam's life is you. A way of thinking about it is like this, a defendant and a client in court. 
The defendant doesn't stand up and defend themselves. The very person is represented by their lawyer. All this, you may not have voted for the president in the last election, but he can still send you when you come of age to war because he is your representatives. You may not agree with everything your senators do, but they still represent you. And in case you don't like political illustrations, let's use one from the sports world. What happens when a member of your favorite football team jumps off sides? The whole team is penalized for the one player's infraction because the player represents this larger unit. He is not acting for himself. And this is what Paul is talking about. He is teaching the idea of representation that the consequences of Adam's sin come to bear on all, all mankind. Now, there are two reasons at least that this sickens us. It's called the felt difficulty. Heck no! I'm not Adam. I don't even know Adam. What has it got to do with him or me that he did what he did? I, I would never have done it. Well, the reality is you would have jumped on that apple a whole lot quicker than him and you wouldn't have needed Eve's help. We have two issues. Why someone else? Why not me? Like, I should be held directly responsible for my sin. Trust me, you are and will be. Don't worry about that. Well, then why couldn't I have chosen someone ideal? Like, why? you know, I've got a friend who's, you know, they come to church all the time, and when that little boss could come around, they even put some money in there. I mean, maybe I could have put them. Adam was, by every means possible, the ideal candidate. Adam was chosen by God himself to represent us. And he jacked up. And there is a sense, whether it's this sense, like my worst sin at the moment, you can ask my wife. I'm a, I'm a pretty phenomenally godly guy. So my worst sin at the moment is, you know when you're driving through a school zone and it says 20 miles an hour? I don't speed through the whole thing. <laughs> I'm not that evil. <laughs> and I'm not texting anyone while I'm there. No, no, because it could get a fine. So I don't want to. But you know the last eight feet and you see the line, and you see the flashing light, and you're kind of like, man, if a cop catches me between here and that line speeding, like seriously, have you not got anything else to do? So typically when I cross that line, it's no longer 20, it's about 28. That's my worst sin. <laughs> but that's enough. It's just evidence that our very existence as humanity is like the woods of Mirkwood. The darkness is within, around, about, upon. And we all like Adam. And I want to tell you, according to the Bible, we all in Adam sinned. But then Paul does, and I, I don't know if I've mentioned in this context, I mentioned the other week in our context, my, my, my one longing when we plant the church in Fort Worth is eventually to do a series called God Loves Big Butts. Because this passage has one of them. Verse 16, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounds for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one man's trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Paul introduces in these four verses a fourfold 
contrast. There's a contrast between the gift of the life of the one and the, the trespass of the life of the one. There's a contrast between the judgment that comes by the life of the one and the gift of free life that comes through the life of the other. The, the contrast between one transgression versus many transgressions. The, co- the, the contrast between condemnation and justification. There is a radical and total difference suddenly between the one who could represent us if we believe by faith Jesus, the Son of God. Paul highlights that in Adam, yes, all these things, but in Christ, the gift of free life. There's all these contrasts, my friends, self-aggrandizement, let me fulfill myself versus self-sacrifice of Jesus. The conscious, selfish sin of Adam, disobedience, versus the conscious, selfless compassion of Jesus, obedience for us. The results couldn't be more opposed. Death versus life. Death reigns, but in Jesus we reign in life. And the power is different. How much more, Paul says, how much more the free gift and the grace of God that comes through the life of Jesus. And then as we move from verse 17 onwards, uh, verse 17 tells us this, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned, all these contrasts, sin through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. What Paul is doing for you and me here, what Paul is doing for the Israelites and the Romans and the Gentiles in that time is putting some facts across that really help them understand. But what he's doing for us as we read it today, he's asking, whose family are you in? Who are you in, guys? Who's representing you? And for goodness sake, don't say, I'll represent myself before God because that is a no-win situation. Even if you're half as holy as me, the only bad thing I do is speed up to 28 before the end of the 20-mile-an-hour zone. Paul is throwing these contrasts. What are you going to choose? Whose head you win, head you lose. Who's your head? Who's going to be the one that you say is representing me? Adam, yourself? Sinful human nature or the life and the righteousness of Christ? Now Paul in verse 18 gets back to what he thought in verse 12. If you look in your Bibles, verse 12 is kind of left hanging. hanging. There's a long dash. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned, dash. Paul does his typical thing, leaves it for like eight verses and comes back. Therefore, okay, let me go back to verse 12, guys. Let me go back to what I wrote earlier. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Paul is putting us right before us, the gospel, the heart of the gospel. There is a situation you are in because of your very nature that you are distant from God. Nothing you do, nothing you seek to do will fully please him or even fully please yourself. You're made for relationship and oneness with him and the way that that Christ's life has made that possible because he lived a perfect life. He fulfilled obedience. 
he makes these contrasts between Adam and Christ, between sin and grace. Guys, we often in our time think that we're not really that bad. But we're plagued with the stuff. It's not about the very worst actions. It's about the fact that we are even locked in systems that ensure that the poor and the oppressed stay poor and oppressed. The very value of the clothing that you buy for the prices you can get it for means that someone in Pakistan or even a child, as they're finding out more recently, is working under oppressive labor that you may say, well, that's got nothing to do with me, but it does. Because your very existence means that you participate in sin. You may not perpetrate sin. I mean, you guys may be more perfect than me. You may never have even considered speeding up at the end of a 20-mile-an-hour zone. But our very existence as humans means we participate in sin. And so we need one who never did. We need one totally different. And Paul is saying, Christ is that one. There's a similarity between Adam and Jesus. We see that they represent everyone. They represent all of those in humanity. But the difference is that if we choose Jesus, grace abounds. And he finishes verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul is saying, someone else is going to object. The lawmakers, the Jews are going to go, and by Jews, I don't mean a derogatory, I mean the the Judaistic thinkers go, but what about the law? And Paul says, I've got some really bad news for you. The law's perfect role was to show just how jacked up man and woman are. It did its job. The law's job was to lead you to the only one who can give you righteousness. It did its job. The law is perfect in what it does, showing us how desperately we need to be represented by Christ. All the law did was increase the trespass, is what he says. No room for ignorance or misunderstanding now. And Jesus is great. Jesus comes in a sermon on the mount, and you're like, sweet, I haven't murdered anyone. If you're ever angry, you're in. Ow. Ha ha, never committed adultery. Yeah, if you ever look at a woman with lust in your eyes. Ha ha, never been greedy like I have. Yeah. Ha, never ever. Oh, my word. Paul, Jesus just says, you need the spirit. You need me. I am the fulfillment of the sermon. But look at verse 21, guys, and then I'm going to apply some stuff. But grace reigns. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is what I think goes on, guys, as I finish. Some of you are still in Adam. I'm not asking you whether you are. I know you are. The difficulty in Texas, the difficulty in smaller town Texas, is that you've all done church your whole lives. And so you're pretty certain you're in Christ. Well, it's not about going to church. Living in an airplane hangar doesn't make you an airplane kind of thing. Or we are in Christ, but we live as in Adam. And I mean that in two ways. We live as if by fulfilling the law, by being really, really good and not doing the things Adam did, hopefully God will love us. Or we live as if we're not reigning in grace, we're reigning in sin, we're living like crazy hellbound sinners, but can apply and shout out to everyone, no, I'm a Christian, I'm good, I'm in, I'm in Christ. 
but you're in Christ, but you're living as those in Adam. I want to just tell you something. Life isn't an idea, my friends. Paul is not talking about the idea of life. There's life, which is kind of like organic sort of movement, and, uh, and, and there's death, which is like the non. Life is a way of being. Paul is saying you have life in Christ. In other words, the very way you live is the life that you have. Not, I know that there is life in Christ, but I'm living as a dead one. No, Paul is saying there is no distinction in his thinker as a Hebrew thinker. Life is how you live. That's your life. My friends, we are the family of Christ living in the neighborhood of Adam. A people in whom grace reigns. Is that true in your life? Would every one of your friends, if you gave me their numbers and I was able to text them or call them and I said, hey, uh, you know, Kiralee, um, that's my wife. What is she like? What, what, is, what is her life like? Not does she talk about life in Jesus. What is her life like? We are the people in whom grace reigns. Peterson, Eugene Peterson calls us the colony of heaven in the country of death. Is that true of your life? Paul's not just saying some theological comment that to be in Jesus is a good thing, thumbs up. Paul is saying to be in Jesus is to be the colony of heaven in the neighborhood of death. That's who you live as, not what you know. Who are you living as? Are you living as the family of Christ? Is Christ your head and you're his body? That's the whole picture of the New Testament about the church. Grace counters the death of our neighborhoods but not grace as some abstract, distant theological truism, but grace in and through us. So my question, or two questions, whose family are you in? Simon, I'm good. Thanks for ranting and raving, but I'll represent myself in front of God. I can tell you now how that's going to go. I just, I just pointed out several hundred times. Okay, it's question one. Whose family? And I mean, I mean, whose family are you? Who, whose family are you in? You, you cannot disown your family. You can disown living with them, but the fact is that mommy and daddy made you. That's that's it. That's what this is about here. This the fact is you are either the sons of Adam, daughters of Adam, or the sons of Ad, uh, Christ, the daughters of Christ, by faith in Him and being replaced as your who your family head is. And then the second question: Does your life show that? Because it's not just life, L-I-F-E, it's your life as a child of Christ should show the family name off. Father, I thank you for this majestic section of scripture. Thank you for its core, no, I thank you for its marvelous revelation of all that is true in Christ. Thank you that there is a choice there is an opportunity to not face the death and the separation eternally from God of those who choose to live in Adam, but we can live in the one and through whom grace reigns. Now, ask these young men and women that they would choose and that their life, not just some scientific biological idea, but their very life would show that they're in Christ. Lord, for those caught up in sin right now, for those in Christ but living as Adam, whether that be sexual, whether that be um, greed, whether that be apathy, whether that be absolute egotism, 
and pride, selfishness. God, would you work by your spirit in them to undo that? Oh, and God, I pray for those here tonight, or today, who say, I'm cool, I'm going to hang with Adam. God, show them their desperate need of you and the life and the grace that reigns for those whose head is Jesus. I pray all these things in and through the one who gave his life for us, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen. Dave? Am I dismissing? Or? Okay, you guys can go or hang out, whatever normally happens. Bless you. Thanks for listening in. Go well.